Gospel reading this morning is from uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, was a, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the gospel of our Lord. This morning is the second Sunday of the season of Epiphany which is a, a season here that we discussed last week when Pastor Jeff was up here, a season of illumination and of light, of this sense of increased understanding of who God is. At some level, if you could imagine the season of Christmas being that moment, if you guys have ever seen the sunrise coming up and you see the sun just coming up over and it's sort of brilliant blinding light and all the darkness. The season of Epiphany is that moment after the sun has risen enough where you can start to see it illuminating everything in light of it. You begin to be able to see the outlines of the hills, of the mountains, and of the trees. Everything somehow has made sense in light of the sun. And every year we kind of go through this seasonal work precisely because there's something about the nature of the gospel that just offends our reason, that God would actually love us so deeply not only to create us, but also to save us and to desire to have us with him for eternity. In Epiphany, we are like the disciples invited to come alongside of Christ and see the good news of the revelation that he gives to us. Last week, Pastor Jeff unfolded for us in the baptism of Christ, how we begin to see this sign of God's glory in Christ who, while at the same time he shares in the exact same creation humanity that all of us do. And so is able at some level to veil God's glory, that glory of God that in the Old Testament, again, last week we talked a little bit about that idea of God's glory being too much blinding, deafening, burning for us, if we were to experience it unmediated. Somehow Christ, in being created, still retains that communion, that essence of God's life and light, and as we see him going into the muddy waters of the Jordan in his humility, so we see the glory of the God who loves us. This morning we move to John's gospel. The opening verses of the second chapter where John records Jesus and his disciples going to a wedding in Cana. 
A wedding is suggestive for all kinds of reasons throughout Scripture. A wedding is at some level the culmination. If you're in Genesis 1 and you get through all the days of creation, you get to the creation of humanity, and it's there at kind of that line that we'll often cite, often that will often repeat that God has made the two to become one, and a man shall leave his parents and cleave to his wife. This idea that all of creation culminates in a wedding. It's also suggestive, as Katie read this morning, that always this was the covenant that God desired with his people. Pastor Jeff and I did a few years ago that um, moving through the the, the book of Deuteronomy, you get to see in there a kind of covenant that shaped, that would have been very familiar for the people on that day, that would have been sort of a a conquering power and then the subjugated power. contracts that would have been very familiar, or covenants that would have been very familiar in the ancient world. But what we see is what God does, of course, if you go through Deuteronomy, you could listen to Pastor Jeff, and I'm not sure if we have that from years ago. But God subverts and undoes this idea of domination. God works within a broken creation, but as so oftentimes happens in the scripture, he flips it around. And yet that's not what God ultimately intends, even in subverting it. What he wants and desires is to be married, to be wed to his people, which is what we hear in Isaiah, and what we see happening in Cana of Galilee as Christ, the word of God, is present in that moment. This is appropriately the time for celebration. One of the good questions here in this passage, uh, people kind of have different ways of taking it, is who is this wedding for? I was reading a couple couple different versions of it. this week, uh, you know, um, my favorite was, I, they should have a, a version of that show, Kids Say the Darndest Things for Adults. There's a polygamous scholar that says that this wedding was actually Jesus getting married to Mary Magdalene, Mary of Bethany, and Martha. I guess one person for each of the Trinity. But um, I, I think that the best suggestion that I've heard here is, is that this is probably A wedding that at some level, there's a connection, maybe especially with Mary's relatives here. Part of the reason that Mary's there and then Jesus, of course, and his disciples invited also to the wedding. Um, If you guys have watched a show called The Chosen at all, it actually, I think, does a pretty good exposition of kind of some of the background in this passage and what's, what's going through, why this is such a significant moment, both being at the wedding, the running out of the wine there. Um, It's... Yeah, Uh, maybe I'll return to that here in a moment. But we kind of do have the setup here. They're all at a wedding. The the wine, the source of celebration is running uh, low. And then we're going to get to uh, this conversation between uh, Jesus and Mary. I think to appropriately hear that, all of you know, of course, the Gospel of John is a little bit different than the three other Gospels, which are sometimes called the Synoptic Gospels, which just means to view at the same time because they all basically follow the same similar structure. And if you were to go to Mark, the shortest of the Gospels, and just kind of look that and see how we see Jesus set up, you'll find something really remarkable. And that Jesus is almost immediately, that big word from the Gospel of Mark, he's anointed for this holy mission. 
And then immediately he's cast out into the wilderness where there's nothing short of the wild beasts and angels and Satan himself are kind of all out there with Jesus while he's in the wilderness. We see from the very get-go that Christ is in kind of a holy war or a battle for everything in the cosmos. It's the forces of darkness and sin all pressing in and Christ who is going to try to overcome and triumph over them. When he goes back into, at the beginning of Mark, we see it's the demons themselves that are trying to oppose Christ. And even when, if you're going and you pay attention to um, the language that Mark uses, at the places where he heals people, or the places where he stills the storm, it's the very same language, which kind of has this militaristic sort of battle imagery of casting, rebuking, Uh, destroying the forces of darkness that perpetrate our world to once again reclaim it for the kingdom of God. Even what he announces, if you can think of that story of the Rabshakeh in the Old Testament, is that there's not only acts that are done when like a a conquering army comes in, but there's a kind of uh, psychological, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, there's, there's a conversational, there's a spoken component too, and as Jesus announces that the kingdom of God has come near, that itself has a kind of force to it, that God is now invading, so to speak, our world. What you get from Mark when you read it, especially if you get that, that sort of all-in-one nature, is, is that the time is extremely short, right? The danger is incredible. The stakes couldn't be higher. And failure here for Jesus' mission would cost the cosmos its salvation. When you think about John telling us then that Jesus' ministry begins with this wedding, it begs the question, why does John give us this one detail? I myself kind of imagine, uh, there's a, I'm sure you guys, the reference here is kind of a little bit obscure, but I'm sure you could You'll have to tell me afterwards if you can think of a movie that's less obscure that you could come up with, but this is a frequent gag where there's something happening in the foreground and then there's something totally different in the background uh, going on. There's a movie, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. This is, if you know the opening scene of it, there's, it's like a superhero movie. There's a couple different Guardians. There's one of them, uh, Baby Groot is there. And in the foreground, there's a song by Electric Light Orchestra ELO called Mr. Blue Sky. It has this really punchy, like, up tune. And Groot's like there, he's dancing in the foreground as the, the film is opening. In the background, all the rest of the Guardians of the Galaxy are uh, fighting this giant space tentacled monster. And so there's like explosions in the background. People are like firing weapons. There's tentacles whapping and hitting everybody. You have this sense of this firefight, and Groot's just kind of you know, dancing along, just totally oblivious. He's chasing flies throughout it. And, and that's part of the, the gag, the running comedy of it, is, is that he is oblivious to everything that's going on in the background. And as I think of this wedding, I kind of think of the same thing, that Jesus is there in the background, right? He's fighting, you have Satan and all of his minions, all the forces of darkness, fighting them out, while in the foreground, you have people at a wedding saying, well, golly gee, man, we're running low on wine. I wonder if we could run down... Maybe you should check with your cousin Anne. And, you know, Jesus is kind of, he's, he's fighting the big battle in the background. He's aware of the toll that his mission is ultimately going to take on him. And if there's anybody else in the world at that point that would have understood what his mission would require, it would have been his mother. If you remember two weeks ago, 
when we were talking about the presentation at the temple, it was Simeon who prophesied to Mary that his son would be destined for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and that a sword would pierce her own heart. And so the moment that we get to with Jesus and his mother is extremely significant because the unstated question, the unstated question between the two of them is this. Is the problem of this wedding and it running short on wine? And again, I think this is something that Chosen does well if you ever watch the show. Is it worth inaugurating or initiating this climactic battle that Jesus has with sin and with death? We know here that the, the time that Jesus has is short, that nobody in this particular moment is going to lose their life or their soul over wine running out at a wedding. There are certainly many good and helpful things that Jesus could and would have done in his life, right? But the story of Jesus isn't that we just needed somebody to do a little bit more helpful things, something a little bit better. I'm sure you can all think of that, that moment in John's gospel just a little bit later when he does what? He feeds the 5,000 and they want to come by force to make him king. And this is the, gene, the, the danger that Jesus faces throughout his ministry, right? It's why he rebukes when he rebukes the demons in the other gospels. He always makes them be silent because he knows that him being able to both pull off showing people that he is the Messiah while at the same time redefining that is a razor thin line where people will either say, well, we need you, we want you to be this thing, or I guess you just weren't the Messiah at all. And so he and his mother here are kind of at this moment deliberating over if Jesus should be, if this is the appropriate moment for him to reveal who he ultimately is. And this is, I think, is what's such a beautiful thing as John tells us this about the wedding. Because ultimately what we see in Christ is as they deliberate the stakes of all of creation in this, Christ and his mother have this perfect surrender and trust in the Father, as the one who is, of course, orchestrating and seeing all things through to the very end, that even if they condescend in this moment to help a few people at a wedding, add to the sense of celebration there, God will still be faithful in allowing Christ to be seen as the Messiah. And part of, I believe, the brilliance of this moment What's proclaimed here and what John wants us to grab a hold of is even though obviously you have the background, we have the backdrop, that this is a story about God redeeming all of creation. It's also a story about God's victory, his kingdom, being principally about each and every one of us and all of our details and all of our joys and all of our problems and all of our gifts. When I was thinking this week about what Jesus' sign at the wedding of Cana, what it means for us, I think there were two things particularly that struck me. The church, we all together have this wonderfully big story to tell, right? Christ has commissioned us with that same cosmic story to go out and go forth into the world to expel the darkness that lives sometimes inside of us and around us. And to recognize that our time here is short, that the harvest is plentiful, and the consequences eternal. 
But I think one of the things that can be so interesting for me when I get maybe caught up in the bigger or the grander scheme is in this mindset or this mode of what I do and don't have time for. Right? I have plenty of, I'll tell you, I always have plenty of space to be able to tell people, to have people listen to me and tell them what they need to do because I have all the right answers. I have plenty of time for people to come to me and ask me what they should be doing because I'm sure I have a lot of things that I could give you to do. But what I don't have time for is to take the 30 unexpected minutes to help somebody who has a party planning problem, right, when I didn't anticipate it. I've been thinking this last week, maybe the most direct um, example I, I could think of the sort of the struggle that this is in my life um, of Peter Kewen, um and what he's kind of taught me in thinking through this passage. He's two and a half now, and so he has a, he's, he's gaining quite a bit of language. And one of the things that Peter will do when I come over to Alan Katie's house, almost instantly upon walking in the door, is he'll start shouting, play, 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 and he'll point to me. Play, 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 and he'll keep doing it until I finally say, all right, buddy, I'm going to do my best. <laughs> Playing with a two-and-a-half-year-old is a skill set. Um, but but I, I've, I think I've gotten maybe a, a little bit, a little bit better uh, over time. I think it's really easy, at least for 60 seconds, you know, two, three minutes to, to do what a toddler's doing. It's, it's another level when you're doing it for a few hours. And when I'm in that moment, Peter has, uh, I, I don't know if there's anything that he loves in this world. I'm sure Jesus is there, but right below it is toy trucks. Um, and I'm there and I'm, I'm kind of spending time with Peter and moving these toy trucks around this imaginary circuit in the uh, uh, carpet in the living room. Again and again and again and again and again. It's not exactly the cosmic narrative of salvation that I see myself as an actor within. And I think in those moments, do I have the time, the energy, the effort to be able to give to this? What about all that urgent business of converting souls and providing for those in need and visiting the sick and the dying? And as they think about Jesus and Mary at this wedding and the problem that they face with the shortage of wine, what I'm convinced that they undoubtedly realize in that moment as they're having this conversation is that even if we should triumph overall in the fight, cure every sick person, cleanse every leper, convert every soul, as St. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 13, if we should give our bodies over to be burned. But in the end, you have to sacrifice the joy and the peace and the love that it takes to exult like Peter in the goodness and the wonder of creation. Then you lose in the end. Peter's joy at some level is what all of this is all about ultimately. This is what ultimately, why I think Christ says, it is to such as these little ones that the kingdom belongs because they get it at some level more than I do. And maybe the miracle in the moment that's happening here with Jesus is that ultimately who Christ is is that he is one who sacrifices his ability to have discretion, right? Now that people will start to take on the sense of who they think he is, his time, his sense of preparation, because he loves these people there. His mother who comes to ask him, everybody that he kind of is celebrating, 
to give them this simple, unnecessary joy as a, as, as a sign of the God who not only has created us, made us, and perfects us, but actually truly loves us, even in all of our broken fixation on our small problems. And so I, I would, I guess, just encourage you this morning that one of the miracles of this sign of glory is that it teaches us of the necessity and the gift of patient intercession and prayer. Mary has both the humility and the courage to come to Christ. She is able to admit her limitations, her weaknesses. There's just got, I mean, they can't go to like Save Mart or something down the street and get some more wine. They're not going to fix this. And she also has the courage to believe that her asking her son matters, that Christ would, that the father would indeed care about this little thing in the moment. And that even as Jesus and the father realize the ultimate stakes, they do indeed likewise respond to this request. I think the second thing that just strikes me about this passage, again, the invitation that we're as you hear Mary's words to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's not only to come to Christ and lay at him all of our, all that we have um, to give him, to offer up, to lift up to him, to request, but also to be able to receive the miracle of God speaking into our lives through the lives of others around us. Adults aren't usually as transparent as a two-and-a-half-year-old as to what they need and what they want. And yet, nevertheless, so often we are able to hear, right? Sometimes through actions, sometimes through tone or facial expressions, sometimes through silence. Although I'm sure when I don't have time, I like to pretend that I don't see it or hear it or understand it. But the invitation that Christ gives us, his mother gives us here, is to be able to receive in that character of hope that what God is speaking to us in those moments is precisely to love people in all their uniqueness, their specificness, to be able to respond to their needs with the magnitude of love that God has for us. There's something special about this moment as we're here gathered together in a worship service, that we believe that as Mary came not just anywhere or to anyone, but to her son, who made himself manifest, who became flesh, so also here Christ accomplishes this encore of a sign of glory. He makes himself present in this moment. And what we'd like to invite you here as we come to receive the bread and the cup, the gift of Christ in his very self, is to be able to, um, to receive that gift, to be able to receive that gift, and likewise, um, give of ourselves to others around us. I, I think part of um, the miracle of this moment is, is that in the middle of God's battle with sin as ultimate triumph in this world over death, is we pause for a meal that we might be refreshed in love and sent back into the world. Um,
like to conclude in prayer, and then I'm going to invite Pastor Jeff to come up and, um, uh, yeah. Lord our God, um, grateful this morning for um, this sign of glory at, um, at Cana, at the wedding, for the gift of for the gift of your son, for the gift of just being able to come to you in a spirit of prayer, um, for the hope that we have that it is your son's prayer for us and for the world that's being answered and how we live, how we act, and how we love. We just ask for that we might come with faithful and obedient hearts, being able to um, lift up all that you have given us in our lives, surrender all that we have and that we are to you, allow you to do your work of grace, accomplish that um, final work of holiness, of sanctification in us, so that we might also be likewise um, given for the sake of the world. Pray this all in your son's name.